0: everyone, and welcome back to Season 3 of Everyday Theology. We're super stoked to be back, to have a great lineup of guests, some people really excited to talk with. And when I say we, if you're a follower of Everyday Theology, if you listen to our teasers, you know that by we I mean I've got a new co-host. And that co-host is Chris Green. He's going to be joining me for Season 3 to be a consistent voice And having these conversations. He's brilliant. He's one of my favorite dialogue partners and all things theological. And so I'm excited to have him join me as we engage with some theologians, with some pastors, with some people in other disciplines and other fields, some creatives and thinkers. We're just real excited about having some great conversations, thinking about how theology engages with our everyday life. You might also notice that the podcasts look longer this season, and it's not because the The interviews are any longer than they have been in the past. But actually, Chris and I have taken the time to just have some separate kind of conversations outside of our interviews. That could be conversations about something that happened in the podcast. It might be about a movie. It might be about art. It might be just about kind of pop Christian culture. Who knows? Chris and I, we... we, talk a lot and we can engage in a lot of conversations in thinking about kind of our church world and our theological world and kind of what's going on. So we invite you to kind of stick around and just hear those conversations. They're a bit more open and a bit more conversational as it's just me and him having conversations, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes agreeing, joking around and having fun as we are kind of in season three together. So I'm hoping that we hope that you're going to enjoy this season. We've had so much fun recording it so far, and we're just so excited to be back and to be with you again. So welcome and join along as we explore in season three of Everyday Theology. Well, welcome back to Everyday Theology. We have a Uh, who's no longer a guest to the podcast, but a friend now of the podcast, I would put it that way, but Dr. Kimberly Alexander, who, even if not a friend of the podcast, is definitely a friend of of mine, and I know a friend of Chris, who isn't with us today, but here's how we're going to kind of do it. So our, our topic today is going to be on Tammy Faye and Pentecostalism. There's been a lot of conversation and discussion around Tammy Faye since the eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, The biopic has come out. You haven't seen it. You know, it's good. We're going to be talking a lot about that uh, with Chris. So first I'm going to talk with probably the expert, I say the expert on women in Pentecostalism and kind of the history of women in Pentecostalism. Um, Kim, my, my good friend, Kim, and then Chris and I are going to do a thing at the end here. We're going to talk specifically about the movie and engage with some of the topics that the movie brings up. But uh, Kim, thanks so much for, for jumping in last minute and having this conversation with me.
1: Oh, it's great. It's great to have the conversation. Um, y- you and I should just probably always keep the tape rolling because every time we talk, <laughs> there's so many, we just, you know, it's like light bulbs going off all the time, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's always great to be with you and, and um, you know, you've been a a, a real, not just a good friend, but a good partner with me in some projects. And I'm just, I'm really grateful to be doing this. I mean, who doesn't love talking about, well, I guess a lot of people don't, but I love talking about women in Pentecostalism and um, who would have ever thought Tammy Faye would have been the, um, the the kind of starting point for a conversation about that, but like yeah. who better to be the starting point? So it
0: should be fun. And some of those projects, we're going to have to do a podcast on on kind of the Pentecostal Me Too movement. Maybe we'll get some people together, some of the people yeah, who created great. that document, and we'll, uh, we'll do one here soon. I say that, and I hope that we definitely follow through, because now people are going to be like, all right, when is this podcast going to come out? It is. We're going to do it. We know we can make it happen. Um, Kim, before we jump into the topic, you've had some updates from the last time that you were on. So if you want to kind of share where you are now and what you're doing before we jump in.
1: Yeah, um, last summer, uh, in the middle of a pandemic, um, I decided that it was time to kind of switch gears on where I uh, served and my, really my vocation of teaching, and uh, I'd been at Regent for eight years. Before that, I was at Pentecostal Theological Seminary for 11 years, so I'd been teaching graduate school, you know, for um, two decades, and um I saw this opportunity arise to uh, work with a ministry school of like mostly 18 to 20 year old uh, kids. Now, they were starting an online uh, program and uh, I knew that I could help with that. And so I just kind of did something I've never done before, which is kind of just throw, you know, I actually approached them and said, you know, I could probably. I could probably help with that. And um, it was one of those things where you're young and, it, you know, Aaron, you, you'll you get this one day, but you get to this age and you're like, OK, what do I want to do for this stage of my life, which might be the last kind of full time host I ever feel? And I felt like I wanted to do something where I could really just focus on teaching and have time for writing and not do a lot of committees and not do a lot of things. So this was a great opportunity. It's also, speaking of women, um, I was intentional. I had been thinking a long time about being a part of a um, ministry or school or institution or denomination that really took seriously women in leadership. Um, And those are a little hard to find. And Mm
2: -hmm.
1: yeah, so this uh, I'm now with Ramp School of Ministry um, and in little tiny Hamilton, Alabama. Um, But we have about uh, we have about 200 students on campus and another uh, 20 or so right now online. And so um, it's a ministry founded by Karen Wheaton. Um, It was her vision. Her she founded it. She's still the director of it um it's fully egalitarian i get to teach a it's a required course actually for every student in the school now a course on women in um pentecostal ministry leadership oh that's awesome i've I've never been anywhere that required men and women to take a course like that you know so it's very different for me it's it's smaller um Younger students than I've had in a long time, but it's really refreshing, and I'm getting—I I feel like I'm getting to kind of do what, what's really in my heart, and yeah. that's in a lot of other people's
0: heart for me to do. <laughs> so, well, I'm all for you being there and doing that. Uh, I'm very excited for you. Uh, well, Kim, speaking of women and and kind of leadership and ministry, if For those who haven't seen it, and and it was kind of a limited release, I think it's it's going to be on HBO at some point soon. Uh, A lot of people don't know the story of Tammy Faye. They know some of the story of maybe uh, uh, her husband and all the scandal and this ministry, right? Uh, Especially maybe some of the listeners who are kind of around at that time. Maybe if you're younger, you don't know much about it. But maybe you can kind of give a survey of... The Bakers and kind of where they how they got to this conglomerate, multimedia conglomerate, you know, a household name for any Christian for a season.
1: Uh, Yeah. And and let me say, um, this is so interesting for me to even be doing this because I grew up in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which connects to Fort Mill, South Carolina. Just below Charlotte, North Carolina, and so for much of the my probably high school years. I don't think it started earlier than high school, um, and all through college. And I went to college right there to State University in my hometown, uh, Winthrop University. So for the for about those you know uh, seven eight years, I PTL and the Jim and Tammy. Empire, which it really became, was my neighborhood. It was every, I mean, I knew so many people who worked there because either the people in our local churches around us, and I grew up in the church of God, um, and either people in my local churches around uh, me or my home church worked there or found jobs there, or people who came to work at PTL came to our church and started attending our church. So I just knew so many people. My sister worked there one summer in between, um, you know, maybe her freshman and sophomore year at Lee university. Um, I may have even applied for a job there one time. I can't remember, but um, it, it was just part of my ethos and, and really kind of funny. One of my jobs while I was in college was I, I worked at the local mall, which was small, um, but we had, I worked at JCPenney in the children's department it was a real interesting job, Um, but um, especially back to school time. But anyway, um, every now and then somebody would um, come and say, hey, Tammy Faye's here, you know, and we were, it was a very small little mall. We had like a Belk and a JCPenney and a Sears and then all these little stores and that was it. It was a very small, but Tammy loved to shop. And so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I would see her, you know, wearing, you know, this big fake fur coat with all the makeup and everything shopping in our little local mall, you know, so she was Jim and Tammy and that ethos was just sort of all around me. So that's another reason all this is so very interesting to me. Um, You know, I told you before we started, if you had told me during that time that I would actually be in my, you know, later years (laughs) discussing this from any sort of academic perspective, I would have never believed it. Um, but Jim and Tammy, like many, many Pentecostal ministry couples got married while they were in Bible college Mm -hmm. and they, um, they grew up in, um, or associated with, um, assemblies of God, uh, Churches and families, um, very influenced by Jim is very influenced by, you know, certain ministers um, in the Minneapolis area, actually, um, the Olsons and um, Tammy only a, Jim grew up um, in sort of post-war post-World War II, um, not prosperity, but, you know, middle class, the, right. the kind of rock. middle-class there. Tammy, on the other hand, grew up in um, poverty. And uh, she, that story, she talked about that a lot. She was, um, her mother and father were divorced, which caused the Assemblies of God Church to really reject her mother, she says, at that time. So she grew up already with this kind of rejection by the church kind of thing going on in her family, She was the oldest of eight children, so she had a lot of responsibility raising children. Um, So maybe it's not unusual that her first ministry is sort of children's ministry. Um, But then she uh, ended up going to North Central. Later, her mother came back when there was another pastor who accepted her mother. Her mother played piano in church. So in some ways, um, they both represent a pretty common Uh, part of the demographic of Pentecostalism during that period, Um, working class um, or poor people. Yeah. And we find, you know, um, role models, home, whatever, in the Assembly of God Church. But I do think it's interesting that Tammy experienced both, you know, the rejection, but then later acceptance. Um, And those, I don't know, that might be a theme you could, you could trace in Tammy's life and see how that those two things follow her. But the divorce apparently was really difficult for her. She had an aunt, um, Jen, I think was her name, who really mothered her, um, saved money for her to go to college, let her wear makeup, all of those,
2: mm. kinds of things,
1: you know, so uh, when that was a no no in Pentecostal circles. And so right. um You know, and Jimmy uh, or or Tammy, uh, actually, her first job was at a Woolworth department store and she was so short. um, She said that they she got a job. She was able to work behind the makeup counter because she was short and the candy counter was too tall for them to see her. by. So, (laughs) so, you know, you know, it's early on the whole makeup thing, you know, in her life. But anyway, they met North Central um, and got married uh, really early on and left college and began evangelizing. I think they wanted to be missionaries. It's the typical, if you read the story, it could be um, any, many, many Pentecostal couples. Right.
2: Right. But
1: but here's an interesting thing that apparently, and this to Jim's credit and, and Jim doesn't get a lot of credit and I wouldn't give him a lot of credit for a lot of things, but to his credit, apparently from the beginning, because of the influence, I think of the Olsons. Um, uh, I think it's Russell, and I know her name is Fern Olson. This ministry couple. He said he wanted a um, a wife who would be a fully equal
0: partner in yeah. the
1: ministry, and so, which is very um,
0: rare at that time. Very. I mean, it's rare today, but very, very rare.
1: Then, yes. Right. I mean, that is that's kind of remarkable. But, you know, in thinking about that, I have and then seen what came. It's also interesting. His favorite show growing up was I Love Lucy. And you can't help but wonder, did equal partner mean Ferner and Russell Olson? Or did it mean Lucy and Ricky Ricardo? Because, it, you know, uh, you had these comedy team couples that were on TV during that whole time. You know, so I, that's a whole thing that could be and should be probably explored. What right. was his what was the model there? Was it a ministry model or was it an entertainment model that he was following? And he's kind of the straight man to her zany antics kind of thing, Yeah, because that was a common um, TV um, theme we we could ask somebody like yeah. Zach about that you know because Zach's looked at television during that time period and how it influenced um, I mean Zach actually says that a lot of Pentecostalism just mirrored that TV model you know of of the home and everything so anyway that's that's another thing so um, let me ask that,
0: let me ask this quick question because you just bring up makeup in terms <laughs> of in terms of you know for those who may not be familiar with Pentecostalism. I mean, I grew up in a, in in Pentecostalism, but really in the nineties, right. Nineties and and early two thousands, I still am part of it, but that's kind of the formative years. Right. And even then there was all of these stipulations kind of given to us by our holiness background, right. No, no R rated movies and PG 13, you know, is iffy depending on why it's PG 13. And oftentimes it was whatever focus on the family said,
2: right? (laughs) right.
0: Um, uh, me, there was a there's a big uh, skepticism with any kind of media um, of course no gambling no playing I mean, we couldn't even play poker without gambling we right. couldn't even you play it as a game it was because it was teaching you to be a gambler right so we had a lot of these kind of stricters uh, of of holiness placed upon us but one that I never saw was this one about no makeup it's not until I started learning about Pentecostal history that that was really a very vital beginning part of Pentecostal holiness. And you you didn't see it in the nineties. In fact, actually in the nineties, you see this different thing growing up and going to church. Women were often very well-dressed, had to put on a lot of makeup. It It was, I don't want to say a status symbol, but when you're young, that's what it looks like, right? Like how you dress, it's, quote unquote, for God and Jesus, but really it was to make sure that everyone else knew what, you know, that you were of, not of means, but just respectable.
1: That's a right? really good assessment of that turn. And I grew up right at that turn, right? So um, I grew up in the Church of God, which really, at even when I was young, identified almost more as holiness than Pentecostal. And um, for growing up, holiness to me meant the way you looked on the outside or where you did, did or didn't go. And that's how those codes were very, very restrictive. Now my parents, though they had grown up in that, they sort of were in the 60s, there was a lot of beginning to moderate those kind of things. But I mean, in the I still knew many, many people in in my family and others who wore no makeup. Women didn't cut their hair, uh, no jewelry, um, and um, and women at that at that time were supposed to wear dresses all the time and everything. And so, the in a, in about the seventies, um, that starts to be sort of you know there's discussions about how much is too much and how. What can we do? And I do remember the discussions being like, well, you know, all of these seem to be really heavy handed towards women. What right. about men wearing, um, you know, cufflinks, you know, ex- men wearing expensive clothing, men and these kinds right. of things. And um, so there was beginning to be. In church of God world and I admit I don't know even though I had friends who were in the Assemblies of God or you know there were some four square churches around I had friends in the Pentecostal holiness church but um, uh, in the in the Church of God world that was a an on it seemed like an all all the time discussion um, that was going on and um, because you know things were changing and um, so Jim and Tammy came in. Right at that that time, when that discussion was going on, and I think the discussion was going on, and you hit on this in the way you were talking about the status and those kinds of things. I think that was going on because Pentecostalism was rising, at least white Pentecostalism in the U.S., was rising in... In, the, um, in in their demographic. We're no longer the poor people on the other side of the uh, tracks. Yeah. And we don't want to be identified that way. You know, we, we don't want to be that. We were taking, it was the kind of builder generation. We were taking pride in nice church buildings. Look at both in the Church of God and the Assemblies of God, the headquarters facilities they were building during that time period, right? It's all right. about mobility. And so you don't want to, you know, How do you still maintain holiness, but yet not look like, you know, um, some poor person that is without means and all of that? I wouldn't say at all that this was a prosperity gospel being preached and influencing that, though it may have later caused people to embrace the prosperity gospel as it was developing in other places, because it matched. That, that gospel didn't match the way they were kind of wanted to live and were already starting to live. So, you know, Jim and Tammy are, are rising in their ministry during that time. The other thing that's interesting um, is that in that holiness culture too, now I, I did not grow up with people who, um, who, believed or taught this or anything, but I knew people who did or had heard of it. There were people who in the fifties who didn't even believe you should have a television in your home.
2: Mm, Yeah,
1: And so the rise of Christian television, as we know it now, is not something that would have even been imagined, you know, probably in the fifties or sixties, because it was still questionable as to whether or not, you know, I mean, I did hear Sermons against you know, television,
2: right? <laughs> yeah, you know,
1: this is bringing all this stuff into your home. You know, yeah. And so, Joel Roberts, who was a TV preacher, but during this time he was starting to have these specials every now and then, and he had the World Action Singers, who were, um, was Richard and and uh, his son Richard and Richard's wife Patty, and they were. Doing kind of choreography and they might even sing some sort of sort of pop songs that were positive kind of message. songs. Right. And I heard preaching against that and all kinds of things, you know. So um, so Jim and Tammy are, are arising during that. They they have this stint with uh, and really develop a lot of what later follows them as far as their method. They developed that when they're working for Pat Robertson and the 700 Club. And Robertson is just getting started in Virginia. And Jim and Tammy have a kids show. Uh, Jim is the one who develops the idea of telethons as fundraisers. And, you know, something most people don't know is Pat never has liked to ask for money.
2: Hmm. But,
1: but but Jim is the one, oh, no, we need to, we need to do this. And he develops right. a way. And he's raising a lot of money, and they become very popular. Tammy being really, really popular um, with yeah. people, and so they leave and um, um, and begin starting their own um, television uh, program. And what they were doing was using their tapes from the Jim and Tammy Show, or whatever it was called, on Seven Hundred Club, and playing them. They were buying. They began buying up these little UHF stations or time on these little UHF stations, which y'all don't even know what that is. But this was you.
0: Had Sorry, but I don't. Yeah.
1: Right. You had basically in those days, three, maybe four networks, if you count PBS and PBS was purely educational. So you had CBS, ABC and NBC. And this is all you could get on television. Hmm. You know, it was three. You had an antenna and you. You had to try to find those three stations um, and all the major programming is on that. But then there'll be this little station that's called a UHF, and I don't remember what that stands for. And, but it didn't have as much reach. The quality usually wasn't that good. And a lot of kind of independent programs would be on those stations. And so um, Jim and Tammy and their people with them start buying up time on those stations and playing these old tapes. Um, Hmm. When Pat finds out about that and has all the tapes destroyed and they can't get the tapes anymore. So they start creating their own new format. And Jim really wanted to be Johnny Carson. And so, and Johnny Carson was the, at that time the host of the tonight show, which was very, very popular. So from the beginning, this was not church on the air. This was, um, talk show and it was very entertaining. Okay. So we should probably move to talking about women and Tammy. And so Tammy on that show was not doing as much of the interviewing as Jim did. Right. So again, Jim was kind of this, um, sort of a straight man, um, host and, um, Tammy is singing, they, she still does puppets from time to time. Um, she and Jan and Jim would come out at the beginning and do their kind of little funny dialogue together. Um, and so it was very much entertainment, Right. Christian entertainment, and they were owning that. It, you know, it was like this is this is a new a new um, model, and it was very much Jim and Tammy. You know, so I think in Jim's mind, that's what equal egalitarianism in ministry meant for him. Mm. An equal partner was, you know, shared billing on the TV show. Yeah. Um, But in many ways, Tammy still fulfilled. As the Charlotte Observer said, she didn't look like, um, uh, you know, any idea that you might have of a preacher's wife or a minister's wife. And so she certainly did not act like all the, you know, a normal preacher's wife might, right. or, or I should say women ministers um, who, you know, who did have some renown during that time, though they, they were minimal. Um, she didn't really look like Catherine Kuhlman or act like Catherine Kuhlman, you know, and um, she was more like Dolly Parton. And so, um, so in that regard, she was a real departure from, you know, from the, uh, the norm that you would think of as a minister's wife. But, you know, she, she in some ways did conform to the kind of stereotypes, right? So when she had her own show, she's doing homemaking, teaching women how to put on makeup, um, dealing with childcare issues and and all these kinds of things, and so in some ways she fits this kind of stereotypical ident at least her self identity of what a wife and mother is, but yet she's pushing all these other, um, on- yeah,
0: you know. like makeup, and then of course what the movie shows a lot of, right? This this idea of homosexuality and inclusion. for for the
1: other right and you know it's interesting because i don't remember any um anybody talking about that in pentecostal world i'm sure they were and it may be that by the time she's doing that um i I know i wasn't living in that area at that time i i never was a regular watcher of the show so i didn't maybe i just didn't know all of that was going on and uh But yeah, she, she, but they're definitely, even before she's really doing that openly. um, She is, she is a very loving. um, She's the kind of person that on a TV show, you would expect to just reach out and hug people and, you know, um, make Mm -hmm. everything really warm and all of that. And, and Jim too, in that, in that regard, they were very and the big criticism of them and from a lot of people was how emotional they were. They were very right. open, emotional, Jim. I mean, Tammy cried a lot and the makeup ran, but Jim cried a lot, too. You know, so they <laughs> they laughed. So. Um, so, yeah, she she really did not fit uh, all of those patterns of what you expect in you would have expected during that. During that era, but turns out, foreshadowed a lot of what what happens right.
0: later. And I think, a, I think that's a great kind of turning point in the conversation, because
2: yeah.
0: again, we need to record our pre-conversation, because you and I spoke for about yeah. 30 minutes before we even started this recording, yeah. right? Just catching up and then having a good chat. And one of the interesting things that I think kind of came out of that conversation was that while there were other televangelists, right? So we're not discounting that. And Pat Robertson was doing his thing, Or Roberts, right, was doing his thing. And, and other people are using this medium of TV to share what they call the gospel. Uh, since they're doing something different, uh, Jim and Tammy, right? As you're saying, they're kind of following in line with Carson and really entertainment more than they are church, right? That It seems that that foreshadowing in the same way that kind of makeup, how she kind of could take on makeup and became really popular and therefore kind of makeup really kind of starts to turn in the Pentecostal dialogue, but in the church dialogue altogether, like, look, there's someone who's successful who can do it. Tim, uh, sorry, Jim, uh, he does something similar, right? He kind of takes on the persona of a business person. Look, I can be Pentecostal and wealthy and successful and X, Y, and Z. And now it starts to betray that out to the rest of the church world. And is it fair to say in your perception that a lot of our kind of way that we engage in maybe more of our mega church culture is more influenced by PTL and this kind of shift towards entertainment and taking what culture has and using it as a form of entertainment than we may even realize?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think in in thinking back on it and really doing kind of analysis of it now, uh, I I think they were much more pivotal than they're given credit for, um, even in the scholarship um, or even in the the kind of historians' view. Um, Pat Robertson, maybe because he ran for president and and because he has you know, maintain, he's still on television and, um, uh, and you know, there haven't been major um, sex scandals that rocked his empire. Um, maybe, you know, the, the, the story, it, as I read it, normally gets focused on people like, um, if you're talking about healing ministry or that kind of thing, people will look at Oral Roberts. Um right. but if you're talking about christian television um and and also uh where pentecostal um uh, conservative pentecostal white pentecostalism is, the story often gets focused on Robertson's influence or even falwell's influence um as people who were pioneering this and you know and I think they They certainly are. I mean, Billy Graham or Roberts and Pat Robertson are probably the earliest people who are really pioneering Christian television that is open to Pentecostalism. Um, And but Jim and Tammy come in riding that wave, but being able to I think Jim, at least, is able to see some future that maybe some of these other people weren't seeing And he's really I mean, it's a it's a populism thing, I think Um, Mm -hmm. he's able to see the way and and I think embraced this is the way people want to live. People want and this uh, prosperous life surrounded by luxurious things and houses. And and they openly, openly talked about that. This is the right. you know, one of the things I've thought about is how uh, there's been a shift. And this exemplifies that, I think. When I was growing up, uh, and I should tell the listeners, remind the listeners, I am 62 years old. So I, I was born in 59. So I grew up in Pentecostalism in the 60s and 70s. So most of the time when I was growing up, if you talked about being blessed, it had to do with spiritual blessing. Yeah.
0: that Yeah, right.
1: And it's a spiritual experience that you receive from God, a, you know, infilling of the spirit, for instance, or just just the kind of blessings you received in worship or, you know, at the altar.
0: Being joyful. Okay. Right. I'm blessed right. And, and joy. It's right.
1: It's joy, ecstasy, these kinds of things. Blessed now almost always gets Understood in material terms by people, material blessing,
0: or it's it's so nondescript that the audience can take it to mean that's that, right? right? That's where that's another kind of area, especially. And this is this is an off the beaten path, and I don't want to necessarily go there, but it's just kind of spurns that thinking of the way that a lot of people talk about giving and tithing in the church today. Are they say things rather than saying "give" and you will receive. It's you know given you'll be blessed, but we're not going to describe that blessing thing. So when we hear that, maybe blessing is what the pastor has on the stage, right? What the house that they have, the car that they have, the family they have, the life they have, right? Because that's this is the model for receiving that, right? So it's nondescript, but it's kind of given to them via what they're what they're seeing.
1: Yeah, and it has become such a. I mean, I can remember testimonies hearing people say after a church service or stand up at the end of a church service oh i just i really received a blessing tonight you know yeah and that has now morphed into you know i mean this is a few years back but bruno mars hashtag blessed yeah (laughs) right it's about you know uh bling and you know just this the, the good life Right. You know, the, the idea of the good life in Pentecostalism has really shifted. And Jim and Tammy, they may not have been the architects of the theology. Right. That, that, but they exemplified that.
0: Um, in probably the widest way, right? Like, the yes. more people are seeing that than any other...
1: That's understanding
0: a right. blessing. Right.
1: That's right. And so, I mean, of course, we hear we come to the whole dilemma that you and I, Chris, others the, that we face. You know, we've given our lives to the teaching of theology and helping. We want to help the church. We want to, you know, all of that. And we are up against <laughs> the media, you know, empire, yeah. of, you know, Pentecostal charismatic. World, and that's that's the major teacher in the church now. People are not looking, you know, and so um, and I remember pastoring during this time period. So you would have people who are watching PTL Club or Seven Hundred Club five days a week. Mm-hmm. They are in, in their car listening to Christian radio. Which at that time was dominated by Moody. So they're getting right. a completely different kind of fundamentalist message. You know, you have the rise of James Dobson uh, during this time period. So they're getting that five days a week. And then they're going to the one Christian bookstore in town and just buying whatever books are bestsellers. And then you on Sunday. <laughs> you know, and and so you would have people come to you and say yeah you, know, you know i i heard so and so say this i heard this and you're trying to deal with all of that you know and so you know we live now in and oftentimes
0: people trust those sources more than their Literally. pastor because we'll look at how big their ministry is or look at how many books they've sold or you know how much their music is played on the radio. Right. Yeah.
1: And the irony is as major news, as those scandals were, and they were front page, front page of not just the Charlotte observer, they were front page. We were living in Atlanta when it all broke and they were front page of the Atlanta journal constitution, you know? So those scandals were front. They were in all of the, the um, like time Newsweek, all the, the major news right. magazine coming out on a weekly basis so as may as much as that dominated the news cycle it seems to have had little detrimental effect on on the people who subscribe to that theology and that right. lifestyle and they they it's like that well yeah okay and then but they still liked all of that so now we're that's where we are now, I think. And so there would have, I don't believe, I I don't believe there would have been and I'd love to hear like Leah Payne talk about this, for instance, because she's looked at people like Paula White more than I have, but I I um I don't think there would have been a Paula White if there had not first been a, a Tammy Baker.
2: Right. Um Right. And that's and
1: you might not have been able to get from necessarily from Pat Robertson who was Baptist charismatic. You would not have been able to get from him to Paula White without Jim and Tammy, you know because yeah. they shifted they shifted everything, and tammy, and I keep trying to bring this back to women because I can just go off on all this other, but Tammy. Then, even though Tammy never claimed to be a preacher or any of that, I don't think um, she was very, very much a Pentecostal in that she, you know, had this life-changing baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues experience, and apparently that carried that with her. Um, but she began the image there as hyperbolic and cartoonish as it sort of was. You know, it takes often a caricature of something to shift a culture, right? Right. So not everybody looks like Tammy because it still is extreme. I mean, even today, Tammy's makeup is, you know, extreme, but it shifted us. We started moving over that way. So the look, and it's not just the makeup, it's the, the, um, the signs of, prosperity in your <laughs> your physical body you know right that very much shifted for women with uh with Tammy and so you know when I think about these celebrities and I I once argued this about Oral Roberts because there was one scholar who called uh Oral Roberts the kind of quintessential Pentecostal and I have really argued a lot with that not that that I'm Saying anything negative necessarily here about Oral Roberts. I just don't think that the TV celebrity televangelist preachers are quintessential Pentecostals. I think quintessential right. Pentecostals are those, you know, the kind of unnamed, uh, it's probably an unnamed woman of color <laughs> that, you know, is praying diligently has a very, you know, lives in uh, less than prosperous circumstances, all of that. So those are the people that's really the mainstream of Pentecostalism. Right. But the way Pentecostalism is viewed and in some cases what many Pentecostals aspire to is something just short of that. Uh, that image that you got out of um, Jim and Tammy, and um, of course, what we need to look at is all of the attending. And we don't have time for this here, but all of the attending heartbreak um, struggles. Tammy, uh, by all accounts, was very unhappy for a very, very long time. In right. all of, never wanted all of that. Jim wanted. You know, she she called his uh, um, Heritage USA, which was the kind of um, utopian society he was built trying to build their theme park, you know, retirement village, the whole thing. Um, She called that his mistress, you know, because Mm, he was headed that. It was never her image. It was never her her vision, and um, so. You know, and and Wigger, John Wigger says in the interviews that he did with people when he was writing his book about PTL that you could you could gauge Tammy's unhappiness by how much makeup she wore that day. The more huh. made up, the you know, the um, more extreme she looked, right? The more difficult her life was. Mm. Now later she she owns that in a different way because she it is her it is her you know self expression but during the days she was starting moving toward that kind of extreme uh, extremism in her persona um, the the insiders said it was a measure of how much she was you know so which
0: would you bring up a good point too when we talk about how everything went down the scandals that broke and and really the people not so much you know like you said one scandal doesn't break it seems this conglomerate of of how how the church is constantly moving towards at least parts of the church constantly moving towards the celebrity the fame the culture It doesn't break it, right? Something else just replaces it, right? Right. And we see that trajectory happen, especially in the 80s and then in the 90s. And now we've got our own kind of mega, I don't know what word to put there, but like kind of mega culture of the church that embodies the celebrity, the fame. It's just one thing after the other. It's cyclical in that way. And that thing itself never gets damaged it might yeah. one might be damaged and another might just take its place right something else just comes up but what's what ends up getting damaged are the people both on the inside and the people who have worked yeah with it right yeah mm-hmm.
1: yeah i mean i i have a former student um he actually reviewed the ptl book for um for numa and he When he had first become a Christian, which was when he was in the military, um, he became a Christian, I believe in, in England when he was stationed there with the army or something. Um, at any rate, um, when he kind of, he came back home and his mother had gotten all caught up with PTL Mm. and was, was right at the time of heritage USA, um, people sending all of this money, um, investing in what was going to be retirement homes or whatever. And of course that was the big thing that brought, brought Jim down. Right. Really was the, financially was that because it was a, you know, it, there was no property. There was no, you know, it was just, um, it was, what is the technical word for that? I mean, it's, it's, for Ponzi honesty. scheme, it's yeah. like a Ponzi scheme. Um, and he talked about how his mother was so caught up in that and it brought it really almost destroyed his relationship with his mother because he um, he was so concerned about what she was doing. And, uh, you know, it's just like the stories you see or hear about, you know, somebody whose elder parent is in, you know, is being taken, they're investing in some thing and all of their money is being taken and they're being ripped off and all of that. Well, this became, you know, this Christian institution becomes the, The the mechanism is really between family members, you know, people who support it. It was very divisive in that way. And um, and so it uh, and it really, you know, I mean, when you're let's say you're a pastor, here's another thing you're pastoring. You see the problem there but all these people in your church are just called up in it. And this was really the case in the, the locale North and South Carolina, because it was easy to go to, you could go and and you could, you know, go and stay there for a vacation. You could do so. um, How, how do you, how do you pastor that during that? How do you, like we talked about the theological issues, um, but how how long as a pastor can you confront something and, for lack of a better term, keep your job, you know? Mm, how long are you yeah. able to pastor people if you are confronting them on something that is near and dear to them, right? right? So it was bringing about all kinds of tensions. Um, and, uh, and so... You know, I later was sort of amazed to see how widespread its influence and tension was because it seemed like a very local kind of phenomenon to me. I had no concept really uh, because I wasn't watching or hearing about PTL from the West Coast. I was it was just in my local papers. Right. And but from what I'm what I've been told later, you know, as Leah, I think Leah Payne said in her review of the Tammy Faye movie, you know everybody in Pentecostal land has some PTL story some way they in they were connected or knew something yeah. connected or whatever so it really um it and here's the thing too that we have to remember about this and this really should give us pause this was not something that happened outside of the mainstream of Pentecostalism as much as we all want to think it was,
2: it mm, was yep
1: He was assemblies of God minister. There were assemblies of God ministers on the board. There were assemblies of God ministers who were, you know, his right-hand man uh, and, and other denominations as well. So this was not something that we can say was just, well, you know, it was out there. This was mainstream. And it, it had this, this profound, I think, long lasting effect in so many ways so so very yeah. many ways and you know um the effect on on women i mean to you wonder i've thought about this too since since i found out i was going to be talking about this um, i wonder if the pcl story if it if it emerged now wouldn't be very different because i think tammy would have more courage now mm.
2: to,
1: Address maybe to walk away. She would have maybe had more courage to walk away. She maybe would have had more support to walk away like right. she wanted. Um, yeah.
2: And
1: I, you know, I don't have evidence. I've I've looked for it. I don't think there's evidence of any um, physical abuse or even physical abuse in her upbringing. Though there, I mean, it would be easy to look at her and say she must have been abused as a child. But I don't know that there is any evidence of that. So I'm not saying necessarily there was domestic abuse or any of those things that she, but there certainly was um, other kinds of, uh, I mean, obviously based on the scandal with Jim, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of problems in the marriage there. And, you know, you just wonder if now um, this would have emerged the same way. But during that time, how much power did Tammy have Has power of influence on people. How much power internally did she have to how much agency did she even have?
0: Yeah, yeah, which
1: that's the story of many, 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 many Pentecostal women, wives, ministers, wives of this era, and 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 sadly, still, but it's particularly. During this era they had no real agency they have no identity of she had no identity really other than jim as jim's wife
2: right right but she and gains
1: that she takes that agency later that's what's does, so right? you know that's the that's the tammy story that's so interesting is that she 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 just uh owns it is honest about it and embraces it, and she's got power and agency, and uh, it's it's fascinating. It's a really fascinating story of a woman.
0: And on that note, because we do have to, you know, wrap up here, you did just work on a work with some other people that I think was just published, right? So, maybe you kind of tell people about that work.
1: The um, Grieving and Brooding, um, no, oh, the the Global Violence, but okay, so I'm too, i Yeah, part of
0: you have so many you don't even know which one I'm referring to.
1: Well, that again, the blessing of being here is that in in uh, little tiny Hamilton, Alabama, and this ministry here is that I have had a lot more time um, to write, or at least to finish up some projects I was already working on. Um, And so, two things: one has just been published. Um, Cheryl Bridges Johns and Lisa Stevenson have just edited a book for Brill. Looking at how women um, read scripture, and it's a really I think it's a really important book. And they asked me to look at how Pentecostal women in history have found space in scripture and have read it. And I look um, at two things: I look at how they interpret Pauline text historically, but then also the example of the the um, the story of the the hemorrhaging woman, the woman with the issue of blood, right. how yeah. women find themselves in that text, but how important that text is for Pentecostals in general with healing. And so men find themselves in that text as a woman, you know, it's very, it's really interesting.
0: Right. Yeah. It's it actually
1: really important. Um, it's a really important book because I think it it's looking at something um, that is just critical to who we are as Pentecostals. How How do we find space in scripture? How do we read scripture? How do we deal with texts of terror and Horrible narratives and those kind of things. And then the other thing is that out of the last um, SPS meeting, uh, which focused on global violence, Michael Palmer, Mark Cartledge, Melissa Archer and I have been editing a volume with um, uh, all the chapters. I think almost all the chapters are papers that were presented at that conference focusing on global violence against Women and so it's there's history, theology, um, biblical studies. So we're real excited about that. That is now in the publishing stage at Brill. So um, there's really good work being done on um, Pentecostal women. I'm very interested in this, and this is where this particular story kind of intersects with what my interest the what Pentecostal women experience in the church and in society and, um, is just, it's kind of, you know, okay. So we've recovered a lot of the history. We've recovered the names. We've done some good biblical study though. There's a lot still that needs to be done, but I think one of these next places is looking at these experiences of women and how they not only those experiences have shaped the women, but how women's experiences have shaped the whole movement. I think it's really, really important. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe I need to write a chapter on Tammy at some time.
0: You know, I think so. I absolutely do. Kim, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I hope it's kind of brought some uh, engagement for the listeners who maybe haven't seen the movie. Maybe should go see it, right? See kind of how we might find kind of a story uh, along uh, this, this, uh, trajectory that we see through, um, Jim and Tammy Faye, especially through Tammy. Right. So we appreciate you taking the time to, oh,
1: to impart
0: us with so much wisdom and knowledge. Oh, my goodness.
1: And, um, you know, a lot of it, you know, it's interesting. It's just like it, when I was reading John Wigger's book a few years ago, he was like, oh my goodness, I, this is my life, it, you know, it was like all of a sudden these echoes of things I grew up around. And it's the same. Anytime I watch any anything from the movie, you know, even when the trailers came out, I suddenly was taken back. So to be able to talk about
2: this uh, <laughs> is
1: just really interesting to me. And and it's really helpful to me, actually, in understanding a lot of my um, upbringing and the, the ethos that surrounded yeah. me. So thanks for the opportunity. And I'm I'm so happy that, you know, that this is surfaced because I think um, it gives us uh, more talking points, helps us to maybe navigate some of the negative ways that Pentecostals have been perceived. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe oddly enough, maybe Tammy Faye is the person that's going to help us to um Understand ourselves in a more positive way. I would have never dreamed of that. I say, who would have
0: never. ever have thought? Right? <laughs>
2: thought, so.
0: Never. Well, Kim, thanks so much, and I'm I'm Thank sure, you. of course, if not for the podcast, just you and I. Of course, I have to now. I'm remembering. See, already, we have to have a conversation uh, with some of those key people about the Pentecostal mm-hmm. Me Too movement, and we will do that soon. But thanks Great. again for being with me today, Kim. Thanks
1: for all you're doing. Appreciate it so much, here
0: chris hey hey welcome back yes long time Um, yes they say i know i'm gonna i'm not i'm just gonna be honest you missed a great conversation with kim maybe you know kim because i missed it i mean that's that's always something to consider i strongly disagree with that but (laughs) you know who am I? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Hey, so we, we talked a lot about Tammy Faye and and we're going to talk a lot about Tammy Faye as well. For those who may not know, Chris wrote a really great piece for Christianity today, um, looking at, at women and Pentecostalism really through the lens of the movie. And so, because we just had that conversation, I just had that conversation with Kim. I was like, we just need to keep going and maybe both Chris and I engage with our, our engagement with the movie. Like we'll talk just primarily about the movie and, and kind of how it affected us or how we were affected by it, especially that we were both Pentecostals, even though somewhat different eras of Pentecostalism, but not too far distant. Um. But, you know, just to catch you up, Chris, you know, Kim and I, we talked a lot about the history. I mean, more unfortunately, she hadn't seen the movie, but partially because it's a very limited release. You had to be in a market that had it. And and we talked a lot about the history and about the kind of interesting trends and about how Tammy Faye really kind of created this world for women that they were almost an empowerment for women that was that didn't exist before i mean specifically thinking about makeup right pentecostalism and history and and how you know early pentecostals said no makeup and then by the time you get to tammy Faye, because of tammy Faye, now you get quite a few other people who are kind of more free with makeup and uh and and some others and i always forget her name but i i think of the pink haired lady Um, jan crouch jan crouch yeah and if anyone wonders why i called her pink hair lady just Google Jan Crouch and you'll see why. Yeah. And they, and they, they worked together. So in the
3: early 70s, they founded TBN together. And then the Bakers left. Of course, none of that's in the movie, but the the Bakers left to be, start their own project. But yeah, I mean, they they went way back. And I, I've been told that at the end of their, of her life, well, I guess they both passed now, but at the end of Tammy Faye's life, she was close with Jan again. Oh wow. And you kind of mothered her. I mean they were age, but essentially cared for her um, in those last her life.
0: I did not know. Yeah. Well, Chris, let's talk about the movie. Okay. I'll give maybe some just initial ideas, thoughts, the way it affected me. Maybe you'll do the same. We'll kind of go back and forth a little bit and and kind of engage with certain points. And so For our listeners, you know, again, and I've said on the podcast before, I grew up in the Pentecostal church in the 90s, very deeply influenced by all aspects of Pentecostalism, whether that's the speaking in tongues part of it, the kind of aesthetic and the, the kind of rich spirituality of it, the vibrancy of it, including some of its poor theology, whether we talk about kind of its eschatological views or others, you know, for for better and for worse, I was very deeply influenced. And so someone like Tammy Faye, even though of course, growing up, that was at the time it had collapsed. And uh, the, the bakers were really just kind of almost the warning post for a lot of Pentecostals, like don't do this again. Yeah. And only we really ever talked about it as such. Watching this movie helped explain so deeply how the Pentecostal church became the Pentecostal church of the nineties mm-hmm. because, and while it is just a movie, it is a you know biopic. So there is some research. They did it as much as they could with some creative licensing into the history, but looking at the Pentecostal church in the nineties, and then what we have as the kind of like amalgam of Pentecostal evangelical mega church kind of, you know, a lot of mega churches, would claim Pentecostalism to some degree, but they don't kind of express it, right? Looking at this movie, watching this movie, it almost like hit me, this is the shift, right? And it happens in other places as well. Clearly Pat Robertson, we see this happening, but so much of the way that the church looks and feels as this piece of entertainment Mm -hmm. right? These large churches for entertainment purposes, right? Like you've got to have the lights, you've got to have the sound, you've got to have a order, you know, uh, for those astute within the church, the, the right planning center, right? Everything down to the minutes, even the music being, uh, you know, track oriented. So that way it cannot go any longer than five minutes. That was so unnatural to my Pentecostal upbringing, but watching, kind of, through the eyes of Tammy Faye, seeing how this is shifting through this moment of entertainment, of deadlines, of TV, of so on and so forth, and cutting and, and everything, makes me kind of uh, lament a bit, right? And I, there are parts, there are other parts of it that the movie that really affected me deeply, such as looking at how the effect of that on Tammy Faye and, and I don't want to say feeling sorry for her because, you know, she was culpable to some degree in a lot of things, but there was so much of a, of a feeling of empathy for her in the film because of this machine that's being built and kind of pairing that again with the way that the church is still building a similar machine, you know, actually makes me more empathetic for those who exist still in that space of the creation of their own personal kingdoms. Um, There's a kind of weird thing of, yes, your downfall is your fault, but yes, there is such an empathy and towards the kind of like spirit of mammon that gets followed in these kind of spaces. So I'm, I'm conflicted, right? Like it left me a bit conflicted. The movie did both with empathy towards her, but also, you know, this going, I, I really see to some degree the seeds of the way that the church looks today through this film. Yeah. And it makes me go, we we didn't take that as a warning. We took it and just said, let's fix the, fix the parts that are legal and let's keep going. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that resounds with you at all, but that's kind of like maybe two points that really hit home to me in watching the film as I left it.
3: Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's not my area of expertise, so this is all kind of gut instinct
0: on my part, right? right. And I would say the same for me, right? Clearly, sure, sure, sure.
3: But my my sense is, and I'm not I'm not sure that we can ever know. Were our churches changing, and that's how TBN and PTL took off, right? Or Did PTL and TBN change our churches in fundamental ways? Right. Or or that's a chicken egg problem. But I I certainly think again, this is I I have no data, right? But my my gut is that when television like the, the watching television fundamentally changed the way our minds worked. Yeah. The way that our minds worked about everything, including ministry. Right. So, in the the, uh, uh, David Milch, um, who was creator of NYPD Blue and some other, other shows, HBO, he's really sick now. But I heard him a few years ago, probably, well, it was right after 9 11. I heard him give a lecture about filmmaking and tv producing tv directing tv and so on and in that lecture which is now 20 year almost 20 years old he talks about how there's a reason in immediately after 9/11 we wanted to go to war and we wanted to broadcast the war like make sure that people could watch every single day they could watch the war taking place they could watch yeah. us bombs they could watch us yeah you know and and that scene he says where we were in Baghdad and we pulled the statue down, pulled it down. I watched down. it
0: in high school. Yeah. Everybody live. Well, not live, but more or less. We right? I mean, yeah.
3: were watching it, you know, so to speak in the moment, right. It's, right. it's happening. If not live, then within hours, right. We're right.
0: Seeing, it was within hours
3: for sure. Right. And we had seen nine 11. We saw at least the the second plane, right. Or or we saw a video of, of the plane hitting, mm-hmm. The towers and his argument was which was like breathtaking at the time that i heard it all you know 20 years ago is that because we had seen the violence on our tvs and we had been conditioned to watch tv and to expect tv shows to work a particular way we wanted that exact we needed that experience to end we needed what he called a season finale Huh. or a series finale in which we saw the good guys won and we can end the show and go on with our lives. Right. And w- what's astounding is he said that like right after what had happened in Baghdad. And then, you know, the war on terror continued for another 20 years, but it didn't right. matter. It didn't matter because we had seen what we need to see and move on from that show. Right. Like mm. it, it, it had its finale and yeah. that we got to watch it. And and I think about that all the time now. But that that insight that we've come to expect the world to conform to what our experience of watching TV has told us reality is. And if you if you take that assumption and then you ask about what happens when you've got multiple Christian TV networks that 24 hours a day, 7 days right. a day 365 days a year are pumping church experiences, preaching miracle services into your living room and you're eating it up. What happens to you, right? Like what, what starts to happen to the way you think about what church is and what should be doing and what the gospel is and what portions of scripture matter and what the issues are that need to be spoken to, et cetera, et cetera. But also just how do we structure our work? What songs do we sing? Right? Do we yeah. need lights? Do we need, you know, do we need to change
0: the lighting in the room? Do we? That's need to that's background? a great point, and and actually, it you know, kind of brings to mind that Kim was talking to me about that. Right? That that fundamentally it changes. It, she was kind of de- describing how being in the the pastorate. How people would come to her or come to her husband and talk about what they watched on TBN or PTL or whatever it was, and use what was on TV as an argument, maybe against what was taught. Right? Well, you say this, but look at what this no, was Jim on. You know, yeah, you know Jim Baker or whoever, and and of course we still very much have that. Oh, absolutely. That tendency today, probably even more so, right? Yeah. With the, I think it's with much worse now, yeah. YouTube worse. and, you know, two white guys like us talking on a podcast and people listening and say, but, you know, Aaron said this or Chris said that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How we fundamentally consume what now it's just call it content, right? How yeah. we how we consume content has changed the way that we think kind of going back to that same theme that you and I have talked over and over again, that we don't change our minds as much as our minds are changed for us. Right. And so what we inhabit ends up being who we become. Absolutely. Right. That's right. And I think, I think it's far
3: worse now because what people figured out in a 24, seven saturated market saturated in every way you know by innumerable voices is that in order to be heard you got to be louder you got to yeah. be louder and you got to talk about things that are more provocative and so it's there's a kind of escalating one-upmanship of you know you say something outlandish but you got to say something more outlandish the next time yeah in order to kind of keep to keep attention and i think i mean lots of people have observed this about but i think it's far worse than we even realize so yeah we're we're somewhat aware of it, I'm not sure it's a frog and kettle situation, but it's I, I still think there's a way in which it's worse than we think it is, and it's shaping us more deeply than we think it is yeah I, I had this um, a couple of weeks ago, as I told you, i got to i think we mentioned it on one of the podcasts, but if not, you and I talked about it off off air i I was able to teach a preaching course. At Angeles Temple in Los Angeles, the church Amy Simple McPherson built. Yeah. And so the last session I had with the students, I took them into the auditorium. And just had them sit down, walk around, stand on the stage. And ask them to think about what does this space say theologically? Like what, mm-hmm. does, what does it say to you? And what, what says it? Right. So they noticed their stained glass windows that she had made. There's a painting of of Christ surrounded with angels, gorgeous painting behind the the pulpit. Of course, a a high stage, a couple of balconies. So they're they're just kind of reading all this. And then perhaps most famously, at the center of the church is this dome that she had painted like a blue sky in anticipation of the coming Jesus, right? So you're, you're in the church, you see these stained glass windows that represent scenes from jesus birth to his ascension you see the painting in the center of christ surrounded by angels the the king who's coming and then the sky this open expectation of the return of jesus so they of course noticed all that but here's the thing all of that is original to the building all of it Hmm. so i asked them what's been added since then right like what in the last hundred years what have they brought in that adds to the theological content of the space? Yeah. Now, there isn't anything. What right. they've added are lights. What they've added are soundboards. What they've added are cameras and screens. And I, I, I don't want to exaggerate that, but I do think that's a telling. I, I mean, I think that's revealing, right? Yeah. That there's something in our tradition. There was a, a kind of theological impulse at the heart of our movement. But for at least the last few generations, mostly all we've been trying to do is amplify whatever it is we're doing or broadcast whatever we're doing. Right. We're trying to get it seen by as many people as possible, heard by as many people as possible. But we're not as concerned about what it is that they're seeing. And right. Just that right. it's seen and heard, right? And, it, and again, I don't want to overstate that as an example, but I do think it is an instructive one.
0: Well, I, I, two, two points to that on this one, particularly, you know, there's a reason why, you know, I've been lucky enough to get to travel in Europe quite a few times and, and quite a lot really. And every time I go, I just find myself going into whatever cathedral I can get into because there is a story in pretty much every ancient cathedral right yeah. it's the yeah. stained glass it's the the frescoes it's the paintings it's the carvings it's the you know whatever it is yeah. there is a reverence in the story of christianity displayed whether sometimes I, I agree with the story or not right again whether it's a eurocentric version of the story yeah, sure, of course there is still a telling that shaping mm-hmm. that is completely missed within i think the architecture of the modern church, right? Mm. Especially in the US. To the other point about kind of how that changes our minds, right? This is just an anecdotal story, but again, kind of how quickly that consumption of content and the kind of content can affect us without knowing. Mm. I, today, a couple of days ago, I was, for those who are kind of watchers of the news, you know, I was canceled on one of the 1800 plus Southwest flights that got canceled. Yeah. Right. And so I hear, you know, Hey, it's canceled because of weather air traffic control, like all this stuff. And and I'm like, I'm in Florida and it's not storming. I don't think that's the case and other planes are flying. So air traffic control. So I was already prepped to go kind of like, maybe this isn't the truth.
2: Hmm.
0: Finally get back still fighting over like them, refunding me the $250 it took for me to change airports so I could actually get home the next day. And someone just said, Oh, didn't you hear, you know, pilots refused to fly because of vaccine mandates. And so it was a staged, you know, coup of the, of the staffing and the pilots. And I just said, huh, that's interesting. Well, maybe that's why they didn't, that's why they said it was weather. And that's why they said it was ATC. And that's why they don't want to give me money back because they can claim it's you know out of their control when it really is. And I just accepted it and just moved on with my day, right? Like I was just like, okay, that's what it is. A couple hours later, it just really bugged me that I didn't actually look into it. And so I started looking and then I realized, oh, all of that was were lies that were kind of pushed out on Twitter. There was no, there was no walkout. There was no vaccine like thing happening with pilots. And this isn't the case. Verifiably, it's not the case, but it was so quick. Right. I mean, it just, it was right there. It was, I was primed. I was prepped. And I walked around for a couple of hours going, oh, so that's why Southwest canceled me without even having to accept or deny. I just kind of took it. And then I realized it was basically a talking point of a certain political persuasion, mm-hmm. right? If it's that easy with something like this, how much more effective going back to the church kind of construction and the way that we're kind of, we're engaging with Christian content, how much more are we constantly being changed without our knowledge, right? Without at least our our, our conscious knowledge
2: mm-hmm.
0: about what we think Christianity is, what we think the church is, what we think our theology is, by all of this stuff that we get put in front of us, yeah. whether it's YouTube or podcast or church services or the way that the church is constructed, the aesthetics of it, the beauty of it, or the lack thereof, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know. Chris, it almost feels kind of defeating, right? Like, no, no. Absolutely. How do I, how do, what do I do?
3: Right. No. Well, And I, I think if, if it doesn't feel defeating, you're not paying attention. Like if you don't, that's what I meant earlier by it's much worse than we think it is. Right. Yeah. So if you think of this as, you know, it's not great, but we can make it work. No, 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 no. Like if we don't have, if God doesn't act in, in a way that opens us up to new possibilities without prophecy, without martyrdom of a particular kind, we're not getting through this. I mean, and yeah. by we, I don't mean the church, but our churches, like we're, right. we're, not, we're not going to get through this. Of course, God's work will go on, but what we're doing is going to be, has already largely been, if not mostly been, co-opted by other projects right by political and economic and social projects and our churches are just clearing houses for for other people's right right and in some ways that's the bargain i think a lot of people have made like i'm willing to say whatever i need to say to grow i'm willing to do whatever i need to do to right. my platform right yeah and yeah i mean to put this in old school Pentecostal speech, like that's exactly the kind of trick we should expect the enemy to play. Right. Like Mm. this, you know, if we, and I know it's not sexy for a lot of people to talk, to talk about the devil or evil, but I think theologically, I think it's really essential to realize that evil is deceptive. Right. For deception to work, you know, it kind of has to promise you something that looks enticing. Right. right. And, and not just promise it to you, but in some way, deliver, deliver enough to get you to, to buy into something you otherwise would not buy into. Right. Right. Um, and it's. Yeah. So I think, I think we have, we have a sense that it's bad. I think it's much worse. I think we should feel. A kind of defeat. We should still trust in God, right? Because God raises the dead, but yeah. I mean, what we're up against, is enormous, right? Enormous. Right. And there's so much that I want to say about it, but let, let me come back to the
0: movie for just a second because yep you know, Yep. Ostensibly that's what we're talking about. It's supposed to be, but you know, this is our conversations. <laughs> exactly. Can we ever stay on point? Uh, first of all, I don't
3: know if you've seen this, but it, it, you should and everybody else should too. This movie is actually
0: based on a documentary from 2000. Yeah. And uh, have you seen it? Have you seen it? I have. I've tried. In fact, Kim and I actually talked about it actually hard after our podcast. Work. It's impossible to get, right? I've seen it, but it's it's not easy to find. Um, but if you can
3: find it, find it because watching the two against each other is really instructive, right? To see the footage of Tammy Faye and then what they do with it in the movie. And yeah. my, my contention is, and I've only seen the movie once. So um, you know, I offer that, that caveat, I don't know what it'll be like if, if, and when I watch it again, but my impression is the movie is deeply conflicted because the filmmakers, and I don't know if this is the director or the, I don't know who just whoever's making the movie, right? they can't entirely get their minds around how conflicted the, the subject matter is I I think, in other words, they're writing about something that's more conflicted than they they know what to do with. And here's Here's, here's part of what I'm trying to say. So I think Jessica Chastain, who produced the movie and apparently is the the force that made it happen, like she portrays Tammy. I think I think she's great in that role. And it's if it's not an award winning role, it's definitely she she does herself justice and she does. Tammy yeah. Faye's justice in the role i think it's a remarkable performance so she humanizes tammy faye yeah very the much self is not sure what to do with her right and the ending i think is especially telling right so the ending you know tammy faye has come to oru to perform a, a final concert right after having been you know separated from jim and Cut, and, and in the movie, she, she's constantly making suggestions that she's done with the church. Right. She, after her mother's funeral, she and her father um, or her stepfather, sit in the church and talk about how grateful he is that he never has to come to church again. Now that her yeah. mom yeah, all that kind of right. stuff. Right. Th- that's not true to the documentary or to Tammy's history. Like the, hmm. Tammy Faye remained D, de- and and that's really clear in the documentary. And it's also clear if you listen right. to her um when she's on rose uh, she did a ton of talk shows she had a talk show of, uh, of her own she was a co-host um tammy faye was and you know up until the a day or so before she died she was regularly appearing on radio and tv and in all of those she talks openly about her her faith her church her sense of calling so the, the movie yeah. has an ax to grind with wanting to show Tammy Faye as this humane person in the midst of all of these white evangelicals are all all Jerry Falwell or closeted gay men, like, you know, her husband, Jim and, and that as humanized as she is, everybody else around her is pretty dehumanized. Right. Not Jim so much because Andrew Garfield, I think does a great job portraying him, but the character isn't written with as much care. All that to say, so at the very end, she's at ORU. She's going to perform the concert. And in the movie, it's the, the place where we kind of go into fantasy. And the movie seems to suggest that she's imagining herself on a stage with a huge choir behind her and this unfurling American flag. And in the last 30 seconds of the movie, she's looking into the camera. She's singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And the flag is unfurling behind, behind her. And then she ends with these lines about God bless America. God loves you. And then makes a kind of showgirl move and the movie ends. Right. So yeah. kind of mashing together. And this had to be intentional on the, on the director's part.
0: Right. That scene was kind of odd to me. Very strange. In that weird wildly yeah. Out of keeping with the rest of the movie. Right. It was and very it was, almost like on the nose for a cultural moment. In exactly. the church, right? and what they're trying to, what that last scene is trying to say, I think, is
3: that this kind of Christianity is nationalist. It's racist, right? right. And it's it's showy, right? It, it's a it's a it's a Vegas show, right? And I actually think a lot of that is true. like, like that, that's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Right? There's a lot of truth right. to the fact that the Christianity that you and I have grown up around is deeply shaped by racist, nationalist, and show business activities. no no doubt. But I think in terms of telling this story, it was false to what they had developed with her as a character. And so I I, I don't think it was great filmmaking. It was clearly a, a moment where the filmmaker wanted to say something about the moment right right and use tammy to kind of kind of get at that now if you go back and watch the documentary she does go to oru she does sing she does say god bless america she does sing battle hymn of the republic but that's not where the movie in that the documentary doesn't end on that right and it it ends in a very different place, which I won't spoil for people because I I hope
0: they will find it. If I hope it's available still. I don't think so. That's the hard part. That's what I'm that trying to find it. Not me. Why would if any of our would... listeners can find it or let me know, please, please, please let us know.
3: Contact. All, all that's say I'm going on too long to say. I think my sense right now is that the filmmakers their their impression was this is what American Christianity is like, and it's it's gross, right? Right. Then. But we want to humanize Tammy Faye, and to do that, we got to distance her from this. But then, the last moment, they kind of surrender that and return to you no. Know, she Im- she symbolizes that and emblemizes that. And I think that that's that's actually close to the truth. Like that that Tammy Faye's life and her life in public, Christian television, and so on. It's so deeply conflicted. It's so tangled. Mm-hmm. Like there are things about it that are re- astoundingly good and necessary and then there are things that are perhaps even more astoundingly bad right unnecessary and I, i i i don't think much good comes of exaggerating one or the other right like it's not just clearly a force for good and it's not clearly only a force of a force for evil christian tv i mean right right but i do think we're underestimating. to come back to our earlier theme i do think we're underestimating the impact on our consciousness of televised ministry and television in general
0: yeah yeah and it really is tough i mean it is really tough because we are i think if anything covid pushed us to a place of going, it's good that we have some of these spaces like YouTube for hearing your preaching or, you know, Facebook for engaging in a community, right? Like it's good that we have these spaces, but if we're not aware of what can come from those spaces, or we're not aware how we're being changed by them. And that's, I think, that's, I think the not the only issue, but a really large part of the issue is that we're just so unaware of it, right? Yeah. Chris, I think that was fascinating. And I think we could probably well, I, talk I, about this movie for a while.
3: Yeah, I hope people will watch it. And I, I've got to, besides the piece, beside the piece I wrote for Christianity Today, I've got a review that I'll, I'll post on the blog after this, after we release this. So if people are interested in reading more of kind of, line
0: by line, my reading of the movie, you know, I'll, I'll throw that up on the blog too. Meaning your blog. Yeah. If you yeah, want yeah. to throw it up on everyday theology as well, let me know and we can throw it up there. Let's do that. Um, do that. it's just where we're, people will be able to find it. I'll get it. To they you. will. We'll, we'll put in show notes or tell us where your blog is. Anyways, just so people know.
3: Yeah. It's just on, on my website. So if you go to com, there's a blog link. Perfect. Uh, but yeah, let's if, if it's cool with you, I'll, let's put it up on Everyday Theology since it'll
0: be related to this podcast. Chris, um, whatever you ask, I will say yes. <laughs> well, <I don't>. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. That could uh, be a terrible thing, but at the same time, it could be great. I've got some know? things I need you to write uh, that I have to publish. I need you to write them and uh, uh, you put my name on it and maybe we'll talk about it. But okay, fair enough. <laughs> just another reason yeah. that my dissertation is not getting finished, though. Oh, fair enough. Absolutely. Let's, let's not talk that up. Hey, uh, Chris, thanks, man. And I look forward to, course, chatting soon. And we'll be back. We'll be back in a week's time.